The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Good afternoon, Ethan. Hey, Ken. Ethan and I are both certified financial planners. Both of us possess master's degrees, one in financial analysis, one in financial planning. And this show is designed to share with you prudent investment and financial planning strategies to help you make a lifetime of smart financial decisions. Do you like that? I do. Of course you do. If you want to contact us throughout the show... Ethan is about to give you the method to do so. Yeah, there's actually two ways to reach us. You can reach us uh, via our uh, 800 number, which is 866. I guess that's an 866 number, not 800 number. But anyway, it's 866-472-5790. And again, this is a live show, so feel free to give us a call and join join in the show. Or you can reach us at contact at empiradio.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Sounds great. And uh, if they're if you're a personal investor out there, what should they do, Ethan? Yeah, if you're a personal investor looking for some help, individual um, investor, I guess. Yeah. Well, we'd love to to work with you. Um, from for that reason, you can give us a call at the the regular um, the regular office line, which is two zero six nine two three three four seven four. That's our headquarters here in Seattle. And just feel free to ask for Ken or Ethan, and we'd happily schedule an appointment to get together and review your situation for you. And, of course, if you're an investment professional out there, oh, somebody calling now, is that right? <laughs> no, if you're an investment professional out there uh, and would like to talk about joining up with a, or partnering up with a uh, well-established firm like our, ours, uh, who has a very distracting co-host in Ken Smith. <laughs> no, just kidding around. Um, seriously, though, give us a call. We'd love to speak with you as well. Uh, we've developed a, quite a, a great process and an infrastructure for helping clients make consistently smart financial choices, and we'd love to help you as well. Sounds good. Well, Ethan, as you know, because you were there, you and I were in the Philippines last week uh, for a martial arts event. <laughs> Indeed, I was. <laughs> That's correct. And uh, aside from being a little bit warm, it was quite a, quite a, a bold adventure, and it was fun. That's right. And uh, so uh, in accordance with that, I uh, found some information through uh, my registration with the Department of State when we were taking the, the travel. I get a newsletter now. And I had some really cool, insightful information about retiring abroad. So as financial planners, we do a lot of things outside of managing investments for our clients to help them protect and preserve their wealth. Right. And uh, make sure that wealth goes to the intended purposes as their legacy. Right. So I thought we could talk about that today. And we have gotten some questions, and uh seems like 
uh, we'll, maybe we start with going over some of the current events. Sure. But uh, about you know, you may be wondering: should you be should you abandon or temporarily sidestep your international investments or your emerging market investments, given the current state of of global affairs? In in short, and that question, I think we can broaden a little bit to. When is it appropriate to tr- change your investment strategy? Okay. So when do you want to abandon or, or make a change to an investment strategy? Okay. As a as a uh, related part of that, how does that how does that sound to you? Sounds really good. Sounds pretty exciting. Well, the markets were up today, Ethan. Let's uh, start with that real quick. A little current event scenario, and you know I like to get step down into the. Uh, the, the floor of the, of the stock exchange. Yep. Oh, here we go. And uh, markets were up today. And what's more interesting is that Greece was up 10%. What? Greece was up uh, 10%, which is pretty phenomenal. It's the highest one-day move in over a year, um, given the fact that the Spanish uh, bonds increased to historic high levels, and the Spanish uh, issue is Spain saying, hey, we're, we're having trouble accessing capital markets now because they got downgraded. Moody's uh, downgraded Spain three debt notches late Wednesday, so to, to BAA3, which mm-hmm. is the brink of, of junk bond territory. Yeah, one above, right? Um, but I think that the, the fact that uh, Greek, the Greeks' ASE index bounced 10% today is just another huge illustration of how unpredictable markets are in short periods of time and how diversifying over many markets uh, brings benefit, not in every particular instance, not 100% of the time. Most of the time, as you know, you've had some experience with, with we, we've talked about the odds and lotteries and we use casino analogies a lot. Right. But most of the time, you want to stack the odds greatly, as greatly as possible in your favor to succeed. It doesn't mean that they're 100%. So I think two things that uh, people make big mistakes is they assume the highly improbable won't happen, right? That, yep. and, and they don't plan for that. Or when they do, they act as if it, it, was, it was never possible to happen and they change an otherwise good strategy that was not flawed. Because the improbable actually came to fruition. And that's not a good way to approach it. And vice versa, you shouldn't expect um, the highly probable to always take place. So the market today, where we up <clears throat> on the Dow, I think we were up about 157 points or so. Yeah. So at the uh, close there, I don't have it right in front of me, but... Uh, um, most of the European and, and general uh, emerging market indexes were up as well. Mm-hmm. I uh, I think it's interesting and just worth commenting. The uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the guy that uh, did the um, the Ponzi scheme. Oh sure, yeah. He um, well, you, which one? <laughs> <laughs> so so many of these guys. Um, he the got like 140 years uh, sentence. Yeah, this is the one from Texas, right? Yeah, uh, let's see what this guy's. I just had it, and um, it's kind of escaping me his name. But um, yeah, he he got sentenced today. Um, and there was something else I was gonna. Oh, so because the Greece elections are, I think, next week. 
that their um, the explanation, by the way, for that ten percent increase was that it looked like a pro austerity um, uh, election that that the, that the pro austerity group was was uh, slightly advantaged. Oh, is that right? Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. And you had talked, Ethan, recently. Um, there was a little letter, an article you'd get about yeah. some of the things that um, could easily take place to get this crisis. And I thought, um, I was look. I always check uh, Larry Swedrow's blog. I recommend you guys, everybody read it. He's a great um, writer, and uh, his investment philosophy and approach is right on and in accordance with what we believe the research, the empirical and academic independent research supports. So I love to check and see what he's written, and, and he wrote an article, How to Be a Successful Investor. And it kind of ties into some of this question that we've gotten. Should you recently, certain areas of stock markets have done worse than others, right? So we know in the last year, emerging markets and some of the international components haven't done as well. Right. Um, value versus growth is an example. And the question that quickly comes to mind, I think, for most investors and how their behavior uh, materializes is they tend to shy away from those underperforming asset classes after they've underperformed. Yeah, that's right. Usually over a pretty short period, if it's a year or more, a uh, year or two even, or less is what I meant to say. Um, it, it, it's very hard for investors to stay disciplined beyond that one-year mark. Yeah. So to have an underperforming asset class for five years for a lot of people is, un- is, if they knew about it, if it was just because they weren't watching their portfolio, that's one thing. And then we see that a lot in their own individuals picking their own investments and then they for, kind of forget about them yeah. um, and don't evaluate them very closely. But when they do realize what's going on or those who, who are monitoring things, we notice it particularly when people have advisors, because usually it's easier to understand the way we report what's going on. Um, it becomes a little more difficult to follow that discipline. And if you don't mind, I thought I could kind of scan through Larry's article here and then relate it to that broader question of should you abandon international emerging markets right now? I think it sounds good. All right, let's go ahead and do it then. Uh, so Larry says, hey, among the requirements for achieving your financial goals are the knowledge needed to develop an investment plan, integrated into your overall estate, tax, and risk management, insurance of all types, and then provide the ongoing care and maintenance that is required. Math skills that go well beyond simple arithmetic. I think what he's referring to there is probably how you compute your financial planning, your retirement needs, and how you make various estimates of asset class returns. Those types of things are very can be very complicated. Even when using passive investments, it becomes even more complicated and difficult when you really don't have a, a, a sound investment strategy, one which you're just bouncing all over the place. Right. As we've talked, I don't know how you put that into a plan. If, yeah. you, if your approach is one in which you hold a handful of stocks one day, cash one day, gold another day, artwork another day, real estate another day, and you're prone or apt to be able to bounce through all these different asset classes. It's very difficult to me, and it would be uh, I'd, very questionable how you would model that out or develop a sound financial plan to get you through retirement if that's your investment approach. Sure. What say you, Ethan? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be pretty pretty impossible. I mean, how do you how do you benchmark something like that? 
you know, and really you're relying really on luck the entire time to get in and out of the right areas at the right time, which we know over over time is not going to work out in, in an investor's favor. That's for sure. The evidence shows that's overwhelming. So he goes on to say the ability to determine the appropriate asset allocation, one that provides the greatest odds of achieving your financial goals while not taking more risk than you have the ability, willingness, or need, this famous line that I love, mm-hmm. to take. A strong knowledge of financial history. And this is something I see most individuals and most of the financial professionals out there do not have a strong knowledge in financial history. And often it's discounted as things have changed. We're in a new economy. Everything in the past is irrelevant. And those who look into the past to make decisions in today, are those are antiquated strategies. Right, right. It, it, that's the, the the tendency I think we have, which in any other field is absolute insanity, to not understand the history of how your field developed. Yeah, right. And uh, the knowledge of how not to get into the situations, um, and we see this because we have thousands of years now of financial decision making that's been recorded going back. 1500s and, the, and then we talk about the tulip bowl mania and the great the book yep. uh, extraordinary um, popular delusions right. uh, madness of crowds and, and uh, all that stuff that's been very well we make the same mistakes today um, we have more research today about why we make those mistakes in the whole field of behavioral finance it's an ever evolving um, body of, of academic work that's going on so how he goes on to say, however, having these skills or working with a financial advisor who does is is only a prerequisite for success. They won't serve you well if you don't have the patience and discipline required. As Warren Buffett has noted, the most important quality for an investor is temperament, not intellect. Huge, huge, uh, a huge disparity from conventional wis- wisdom there which is the smarter you are, the better you should be able to make investment decisions and the more money you should be able to make. When in reality, what we've seen is it's more about discipline and its version of temperament than it is about how smart you are because in a, in a powerful free market system, um, the powers that work there make it very, very difficult to outsmart each other because you only need a few very, very smart people to keep it pretty straight. Mm-hmm. Okay, unless you can uh, achieve your financial goals while limiting your investments to the safest investment-grade bonds, something very few of us can do, you must accept that you and your portfolio will face many stress tests. Economic crises happen with great frequency. Over the past 40 years, investors have been confronted with more than 15 major crises or about one every two and a half years. I think that's a lot more frequently than I would have intuitively thought. Right. Without knowing your financial history. And if you're like most investors, it's unlikely you can recall even the majority of them because they were resolved fairly quickly, though success didn't seem so clear at the time. And which investors fared the best? Those who had the patience and discipline to stay the course. The value premium, the idea that value stocks have outperformed growth stocks over the long term, has been well-documented in academic literature. Not only has it been large and highly persistent, but has existed in almost 
all developed markets, with the exception of Japan, and most emerging markets as well. However, the past five years have seen value perform poorly. This has led many investors to abandon their well-thought-out plans. From 1927 through 2011, the annual value premium was 4.7% per year. Wow. However, from 2007 through 11, the value premium was negative in four of the five years, with an annual average premium being negative 3.7%. So for those, for those years, those, those five years, we've actually value tilting towards value, for example, just value versus growth has underperformed by about 3.7% per year. Looks like we've got a couple of minutes here, Ethan. Um, this type of performance should have been anticipated. If they weren't, if there weren't long periods of negative performance, there would never be uh, risk or a value premium. The only thing unexpected is the timing of the underperformance, which we can't predict as there are no investors with clear crystal balls. Those investors who knew their financial history would have known that we have experienced similar periods in the past, all occurring during periods of financial crisis. The literature demonstrates such periods just when you should expect the risks of value companies to appear. So in 1927 through 31, Ethan, the value premium was negative four or five years. It was actually a negative 6.2% over the whole period, compounded. 37 through 39, it was negative for three year, all three of those years, and it was an average of 7.9%. 78 through 80, uh, it was negative 7.2%. 89 through 91, it was negative for all three years with uh, a negative 8.3% per year. So it's happened before. We actually have a slide in our presentations that we do, Ethan, that explain the fact that it, it can happen for extended periods of time. We mapped out in the late 90s, there's a 10-year period of time where if you took a, an S&P 500 portfolio and first you globally diversified it, then secondly you layered in a value weight, mm-hmm. higher weighting towards value stocks. Thirdly, then you weighted it towards small company stocks, which are also prone to outperform over the long run. You actually have a 10-year te- a possible period where you underperform the S&P, owning just a simple S&P 500-type portfolio. Sure. So anytime you do anything to diversify away from a general stock market portfolio, and you do it in hopes of capturing some sort of premium, otherwise why would you do it, by the way, right. unless you could reduce risk, you need to understand your market history so you know you won't be surprised when it doesn't work every single year. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about this. And what we're talking about is abandoning, or should you abandon, your investment strategy into international and emerging and beyond. We'll be right back. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor, or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. 
or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at empiricalfs.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio, your co-host Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith. Um, we're going to be talking more about the uh, blog from uh, Larry Swedro here in just a minute, but before we do that, I'll give our, our contact information once again. And Frank, if you're listening today, um, we have oh, one, yeah, we have buddy one, Frankie. We got one listener out there that we know for sure. Franco. Uh, his name Frank, and he's asked a couple of good questions over the last uh, <laughs> few months. Frank, we'd love to hear from you, so go ahead and give us a call back if you like. Eight six six four seven two. Five seven nine zero or uh, contact at empiradio.com. Thanks for those sound effects. Can I like those ones? Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's a good one thank too. You, thank you. Okay, well, going into the break, Ethan, the topic we were, we were setting up for here is about currently should you be abandoning, um, should you avoid emerging markets or international out of your portfolio? And we've received this question. Sure. And. I'm kind of going about it in a roundabout way to expand that to, well, should you ever abandon viable investment asset classes? So if you're investing in them, as we were reading through, we were talking about, um, Larry's talking about the value premium. I want to finish what he has to say. I want to come around and say, well, would you ever let anybody tear apart your portfolio or an outside advisor come in and try to sell you into their services? If doing so meant abandoning a very sound approach and strategy that from the very beginning you should understand the history around it so you know how it will work. And so we, we just got through going through is 
hey, every time we have a crisis, if you're wading into value stocks, um, you expect those value stocks to underperform because they tend to be more stressed companies anyway. Then you go into a crisis, right? They get hit even harder. Well, it may make some people might say, Ethan, well, then that's why we should be avoiding them right now because we were in the crisis. The problem is, as Larry pointed out, all you you don't know exactly when. In hindsight, we can look at these dates and say, okay, here's how it worked out. Right. But you know, you, you pointed out that we've been through 15 crises, about one every two and a half years, and they tend to end very rapidly. Um, it's very difficult to time those types of things on that level. Yeah, and if you if you continually apply the same strategy, what you end up doing is the one thing that nobody wants to do as an investor, which is is is, is buy high and sell low, right? That's right. You'll end up doing that again and again and again because if you're selling emerging markets now, or you're selling small caps now, or you're selling value stocks now, well, they've just gone down, so you're selling low. That's and, right. And you won't buy them again until they're they're in vogue again, they're popular again, and thereby committing the, the, the cardinal sin of investing, which we just talked about. So. It's not a really helpful or useful strategy, in my view. So picking up on that, he, he goes on after listing those those periods of time, and then I explained that we looked at globally diversified value and small merging weighted portfolios, and we actually came up with a 10-year period. I think it was um, 95 through 2005, somewhere in that range, um, or 93 through 2003, where you get you underperform just a simple S&P 500 index. Yeah. And I think where a lot of investors do get distracted and make poor decisions is they arbitrarily choose the benchmarks after the fact. And what I mean by that is after they've experienced a performance outcome, they go and search for some other benchmark or index that has done well and say, why wasn't I invested in that? That's what I potentially could have gotten, Right. Um, which is a flawed approach. Sure. And I believe, and you believe, and I think most of the researchers believe, that that helps explain why investors as a whole make poor decisions and underperform the mutual funds that they invest in. If you look at the, the reported, and he talks about this in a second, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll get back to that. Okay. Clearly, these periods were difficult for value investors. That's the nature of risk. If you want to seek higher returns of riskier assets, you must accept that there will be periods, even long ones, when you experience negative outcomes. And there can be no guarantee that even over the long term, you'll be rewarded for taking risk. That's the nature of risk. You can't be guaranteed to get the premium or it's not risk. <laughs> right. <laughs> then it's it's a guaranteed security and right. it will demand or afford a lower rate of return. If that was the case, oh, here he goes, there would be no risk. The premiums would be free lunches. That Stocks are safe if your horizon is long enough. It's just another one of the many falsehoods believed by many investors. The following are just two examples. So he talks about the Japanese uh, index um, closing at a 28-year low on June 1st. Wow. Wow. That's shocking. That, the, hang yeah, on, yeah, that. so it means that the, 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 it's a, a proxy for uh, small cap stocks. Looks like uh, in in Japanese market for 28 years. Well, actually, he's saying similar to the Russell 3000, which is kind of a total market ah, index. My fault. So it's for 28 years, though it hasn't. It's it's, it's closed at a low. It says on, on June 1st. Wow, that's just amazing to me. 
You are correct, sir. That's incredible. Well, and that just goes to show you. um, And the way that you look at this market history can be interpreted in a lot of different ways. We don't always all automatically interpret it the same way. The way I interpret that is not that you never hold stocks, right? Um, Or that you load up in one country, which you believe is safe. It's that you really do need to diversify and imagine being Japanese and having your retirement in Japanese stocks. I'm not an expert on how they invest for their retirement exactly, but I'm just saying if you were, more like our defined contribution plans become very popular here. Mm -hmm. And we know that most investors do have a bias towards their home country. That would be very damaging and detrimental to the amount of wealth that you would accumulate over that accumulation phase going into retirement. Had a Japanese investor, if they diversified across the globe in a market cap-weighted way, basically owning everything in every country that's tradable, in its relative proportion to the world markets, the impact then from the from Japan's 28-year slump would have been minimized. Because we know the, the globally diversified portfolios that we model out, mm-hmm. going back to 1970, you've gotten 14-plus percent on some of these. Right. Including all of these crises that we've gone through. Right. So, yeah, there's an article here that... Uh, um, about Japan hitting that that low. Okay, the bottom line. Uh, oh, and then the forty-year period for sixty-nine through two thousand eight U.S. small growth stocks returned five point one percent, underperforming totally riskless one-month Treasury bills, which earned five point nine. During wow. the same period, small value. Returned eleven point six, and the and the large growth and value indexes returned seven eight and nine point six, respectively. How you react during crisis will determine the likelihood of successfully achieving your goals. Unfortunately, most investors, even those who use their heads to develop investment plans, allow their stomachs to take over during crisis, and stomachs don't make good investment decisions. They cause us to overact to the over. React to the noise of the mo- of the moment. We succumb to the mistake of recency, the tendency to give too much weight to recent experience, and ignore long-term historical evidence, which we've talked about. Sure. Right? People want to hear very little about long-term historical data when, in the moment, the news is flooding in and it's negative, particularly. Right. All that stuff tends to become irrelevant. Fear sets in and panic takes over as the controlling emotion, and we lose the discipline and patience that's required to be a successful investor. The bottom line is that while necessary conditions to be a successful investor are that you have the knowledge of financial history and the math skills to develop a well-thought-out financial plan, those conditions aren't sufficient. You also need to have the right temperament. Asking yourself and honestly answering these questions will help you determine if you have what it takes to be a successful investor. Do I have the temperament and emotional discipline needed to adhere to a plan in the face of many crises I will almost certainly face? Am I confident that I will have the fortitude to withstand a severe drop in the value of my portfolio without panicking? And will I be able to rebalance back to my target allocations, keeping my head while most others are losing theirs? Buying more stocks when the light at the end of the tunnel seems to be 
a truck coming the other way. As you consider the answers, think back to how you felt and acted after the events of September 11, 2001, and during the financial crisis began in 2007. Experience demonstrates that fear often leads to paralysis or even worse, panic selling and the abandonment of well-developed plans. When subjected to the pain of a bear market, even knowledgeable investors often fail to do the right thing because they allow emotions to take over, overriding what the brain knows is right to do. So... Let's get to the back to the original question. With that in mind, um, should you abandon your emerging market investments? Now, this is a specific question that, or issue that you've recently tried to address with an investor. Yeah, any international or, or non-U.S. stocks. Are they, are they risky, speculative investments um, that should be avoided at all costs? And how, what should the context be in which you make those changes? You want to try to tackle that, Ethan? Oh, okay, sure. I might as well. I can try to tackle that a little bit. Let's do it. Well, the first thing I think I would say is making sure you have uh, the right allocation, so the right mix of stocks to bonds. You know, if you have, let's say, an all-stock portfolio, uh, maybe you're heading toward retirement. Um, likely, that's probably pretty pretty aggressive. Maybe probably too aggressive, I would say. So the first thing you can do to reduce risk is to own some bonds relative to, to stocks. So getting a more balanced portfolio probably the first thing I would suggest. Uh, secondly, if you want to reduce risk further, I don't think it's wise to um, sell things like international or emerging stocks as they've declined here recently relative to the U.S. market for the reasons we just kind of outlined. You end up at, what you end up doing is is only guaranteeing future lower future returns because you're selling what has just done poorly recently. Um, and I think I'm of the view that the the markets are pretty dynamic and they change pretty frequently. And yesterday's losers become tomorrow's winners and vice versa. You know, and over the long run, really, what really matters is differences in risk. That will right. explain differences in return. And so those are the, key, the few key things that I try to communicate when speaking with clients about these types of things, even though it's not comfortable to endure a down market or endure what's going on over in, uh, in Spain now and what's happened in Greece and so forth and so on. Um, the point is all those things have already been priced into the market, at least what's currently expected to have happened. The outcome's already priced in. Um, so it depend, what will happen with prices depends on what's going to happen um, relative to expectations. And that's extremely difficult to time. And that's what makes it nearly impossible to get right. So therefore, you shouldn't try. Um, you should remain calm and remain, remain disciplined, remain dir- diversified. Those things are proven in and out uh, over time to work very, very well. Uh, you never had to avoid the, the downturns to get the good long-term average, I like to say. And I think that's true, it's true now as it ever, has ever been. And I think as advisors, we as a group should do a better job trying to communicate with our clients, particularly in the beginning of an investment approach, what to expect. I know they don't sure. always like to hear that. I think particularly when we go through good markets again, when they turn, um, people kind of, and this is a very well-documented behavioral issue, but you, you tend to downplay the potential risks. So each passing year that we have positive returns and not a loss, we tend to get more and more comfortable with the risks that we're taking until something happens, boom, and then suddenly we're extremely uncomfortable and we want to make changes at the worst possible time in a lot of cases. Yeah, that's right. I agree 100% with you that when you're managing risk, the first thing we try to do is to say, if we do take a global approach, and the Japan analogy that Larry gives in his blog is a perfect example of why we are such adherent proponents to a globally diversified portfolio in 
today's current times. It's more important today, I think, than ever before, in my view, because today we actually have the knowledge of what can happen. Right. A hundred years ago, we didn't have all these markets that were tradable that we could track and see how they interrelate to one another. Sure. And, and have a 40 year time period that we could, or 28 year period where we could look at Japan as an analogy. Now we have that knowledge. And again, as I was saying, you can interpret things in different ways. But I think the appropriate way to interpret it is not that you try to bounce from country to country, figuring it out and saying, hey, I'm going to hire a smart manager. Or I'm going to be sold. As we heard in the uh, the article from in, that was in the, the written in the Oregonian about the studies that investors tend to seek biased and bad advice, right? That's exp- over overly expensive on top of it all because it scratches us where we're. It's exactly what you want to hear. It's what we want to hear. However, it doesn't have a, a track record of producing superior or even average results. What it has a track record of producing is below average results. Right. Um, so if if what's important to you ultimately is having the greatest amount of account balance at the end of your investment journey and getting through with the greatest uh quality of life then you have to fight your own your own instincts to take that biased advice or that biased approach whether you're doing it yourself and thinking you're smart enough to bounce around from country to country from asset class to asset class um, or stock to stock stocks to, yeah or you're getting that advice or, or hiring some other manager to do it. The results aren't any better for professional managers, in my view, um, because they layer on their extra expenses than the individuals doing it on their own. The real value, as we've talked about repeatedly, is is having an advisor that's investing correctly and in accordance with the latest documented research on how to build a diversified portfolio that gives you the greatest likelihood of success. It doesn't mean the guaranteed success, but the greatest likelihood of success. Mm-hmm. So, again, switching the odds from being the, the gambler at the casino to being the casino. doesn't mean the casino wins every time, but they should if they play long enough and stick to their strategy. Right. Yeah, one minute. So, anyway, should you, should you be abandoning these asset classes? I agree. No, not at all. Um, it's more important that we as advisors and you as an individual understand what to expect going in. Um, and I know when we sit down, we don't say, hey, the first time the emerging markets declines, we're going to immediately throw everything out the window, even though we already know it's happened repeatedly, dozens yeah. and dozens of times. It's more, 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 definitely more uh, riskier asset class, that's for sure, the volatility is there. Uh, but over time, you get reward for that, at least that's the research. I think I hear some music here, so um, it's just ever so quiet. Indeed. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll come right back. I think we have two more segments. We'll finish this discussion and then maybe talk about retiring abroad. Sounds good. Of that. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network we spend 70 percent of our week in the office what is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it the number one motivator is a positive work environment and that's where real recognition radio comes in 
Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Business Channel. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor, or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio, your co-host, Ethan Broga. Uh, if you'd like to join the show today, please give us a call at 866-472-5790. Or, of course, uh, you can reach us at, uh, at an email address, which is contact at empiradio.com. And, yeah, feel free to, to give us a call or, or shoot us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Ken, what's the next segment here? Well, to wrap up our discussion on 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 this, the the other part of it, um, we were talking about should you abandon? The answer is no. The short answer is no, but you need to have a good, properly diversified strategy in place with the right amount of stock and bond exposure. Mm-hmm. That's the conclusion of that discussion. Right. So if you're keeping your equity to bond exposures fixed, but simply reducing emerging markets. We don't think that's the approach you should take or eliminating asset classes like value stocks right. simply because in the last couple of years you should have never been in them. And it certainly doesn't make a lot of sense to me to get out of them after the four years or five years of underperformance right. or at emerging markets or small cap international stocks after they've already done worse. That is, despite how it feels in your gut, it's not a sound approach. Yeah. And in the last well, we've had a couple of crises over the last five years. The current one is uh, similar to the last one in, in the sense that 
the least risky stocks, i.e. large cap U.S. stocks, have done tended to do the best relative to other things. So looking again at 2011 as an example, um, S&P was up about 2% for the year. Emerging markets at the other extreme were down about 25% for the year. And everything else is basically in between. Right. So the very, the, the very least risky stocks did the best during a, uh, that environment, which is, should be no surprise. That makes good sense to me. Um, when in the future, things will eventually turn around and they will no longer be the best performing asset class. And you'll then not own the things that will be doing the best. And I do want to clarify one of the things Larry said. He said the people who um, believe that stocks are less risky the longer you have the time frame you have, I actually take issue with what he's saying. I don't agree with his point there. As he points out Japan, right, and says, well, hey, it's at a low for 28 years. If you look at the empirical data, and again, you go anywhere outside of Japan or you develop um, as diversified as global a portfolio as you can and then go back as far as you can, you certainly will see that um, there is less risk of ending at the end of the time horizon and being in a down position if you have a longer time horizon than if it's very short. So in any one year, a globally diversified portfolio in the crisis could have dropped 47 48%, 52%, whatever. Um, the likelihood of being down 52% or more in a globally diversified portfolio after 20 or 30 or 40 years, it's indisputable that it's been less. Right. So the idea, though, I think what he, where, where I want to clarify what he didn't is that when you're not properly diversified, exactly right. yeah. holding a stock like Enron, you could hold till eternity, right? And you still lost all your money. Right. So saying, hey, my plan was to hold Enron for 40 years. No, that's not a sound argument because we would never agree to that being a, a viable portfolio. Yeah, you're breaking the fundamental rule of diversification there. So I, I think that's critically important to understand the difference there and sort through that. And then <clears throat> in conclusion to this part of the topic, Ethan, before we get on to this retirement thing, was when do you abandon your advisor or the, the general strategy? So now we're not talking about just moving out of emerging markets or international or whatever. But say you're working with advisor or you're doing it yourself and you've been doing a very disciplined, properly diversified portfolio where you understand why everything is in there. And you also understand the market history and why they will go through periods, certain segments of that, of underperformance relative mm -hmm. to some other arbitrary benchmark, mm -hmm. right? So when or why would you abandon that strategy? And particularly, why would you abandon it after it's already experienced some of the de the underperformance uh, or the tough performance? Because I don't really even call it underperformance if it's expected to happen. Right. What are we under? What are you underperforming? Yeah. You know, you know that it's going to happen, and it's really a function of. Can I hold on to this portfolio and stay disciplined for my entire time horizon? That's the issue. And my view would be you would abandon it when you bring evidence. So I find it interesting that people would abandon, and again, this relates back to that article where people were seeking biased, expensive, but unproductive advice, very poor, right. uh, result-driven. The results were horrible, right? Mm-hmm. These advisors they were going to were saying, hey, sell your diversified, low-cost, over-the-history, highest-performing assets and investments and put them with mine. And the approach I'm taking historically has done very poorly, very tax-inefficient, very co high-cost, uh, and very risky, right? 
And people were prone to take that advice over what they were doing. Yeah, even if they knew it was bad advice. Even after being told it was bad, <laughs> the, the respondent said, hey, uh, I'm kind of I still want interested that. in going back and talking to this person. It's like, hey, this is going to make you sick, but go ahead and I still want that. Right. That sounds pretty good. Right. So my view would be, if, if at all possible, you don't abandon something without any evidence that things really have changed or there's some... Uh, reason to do so. And then you should talk, if you say, hey, I, I like my advisor, I believe he's a bright pers- person, he or she, um, but I've come across this research, independent research, right? Not a brokerage firm, not some putz who just wrote a book saying, you know, what was that guy's name, Harry Dent, that you're always making fun <laughs> That's right. That's not independent. You can't walk into my office with that. I will throw you out. Go ahead and read The Roaring 2000s. I'll have Simon already. throw you out. Roaring 2000s, great read. Or Jenna here. Yeah. She'll throw you out. Get out of here. I don't get my hands dirty. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying, right, Ethan? Yeah, yeah. Um, you you bring that evidence, and if they can't uh, retort that evidence with with um, some sort of academic research of their own, then I would abandon the advisor. But I wouldn't do it because emotionally, I, I read the newspaper and it said Spain's going to have problems. We got to get out of international today. There's nothing new about that story, as Larry pointed out. It's yeah. happened about every two and a half years, and every time we've recovered. And the approach that we take and we recommend that you take has been superior to any of these other approaches. So you don't abandon it based on the current news. Right. Okay. Is that, is that enough about that? Where's the horse? We've, we've flogged this yeah, thing. Yeah, we've flogged thing. Um, I don't have a horse, but I, I do believe I have a cow. That's similar enough. <coughs> Saying it's, we're done here with that. Okay, good. <coughs> All right, enough of that. I'm just saying, don't don't be a jackass about that. <laughs> All right. So, as when we were going across uh, uh, overseas, there, Ethan, to the Philippines. Hey, can you say that on the on the air? What you can say, jackass. It's okay, right? Yeah. All right. All right. Just checking. I hear it all the time. It's not a bad word. It's yeah. an actual. Isn't that an actual animal? Just sounds funny. It is an actual animal, no question. Okay. So, okay, we'll check on that later. Uh, I, I subscribe to the Department of State to their STEP program, which is a program in which you get um, you update your information when you're traveling abroad, which I recommend you should do, because if anything goes askew, um, they know who your emergency contacts are. They know when you were supposed to be there, and they know where you were supposed to be. That makes sense. Part of that is you get the alerts, and now I get these newsletters, and there's um, a sub-agency here called the American Citizen Services, and they publish a newsletter. It's really cool. And being financial planners ourselves, it kind of caught my eye because it was about retiring abroad. And uh, it was talking about there's an increasing number of older U.S. citizens that are traveling and retiring abroad. Um, and I probably a variety of reasons for that. Some might be healthcare related reasons. I was talking to an older guy that was with us, your friend Randall. Randi. Oh, yeah, Randall. Nice. And... Um, he was saying, hey, it's very appealing to go to, say, something like Thailand because they have a good health care system there. It's very affordable to live yeah. on a fixed income, yada, yada. Sure. So I thought there's some interesting points that I would share about it. And uh, um, starting with, you know, they, they recommend checking the visa and the residency requirements in the country that you're going to. And you can just go to the www.travel.state.gov and um, whether or not dual citizenship is an op- option, some of those types of things. But then knowing the local laws and, is, and kind of getting into some of the planning context here, Ethan, um, they say they recommend seeking professional legal advice before settling abroad. 
uh, to determine whether your trust, your will, and powers of attorney may be legally enforceable in your country of destination. So I think that's very interesting. So say you're not even retiring there, but you're just traveling, and you've done a durable power of attorney, right, that has your, um, and you're living well with your medical directives. Yep. How would that hold up if you wound up being in a hospital in the middle of the Philippines or in a different country? Right. Um, how would that all work out? It'd be tragic, but it wasn't set up correctly. Yeah. And so you'd want to kind of check, particularly if you, then if you're going to retire there, be there for an extended period, I would be even more interested in understanding, um, first of all, if you don't have those documents here in the United States, you need to get that squared away. Right. Um, those are basic documents that most people should have in place as part of their financial plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have a lawyer in the United States, uh, your attorney here, check it out. And then the U.S. Embassy or consulate can provide you with a list of local English-speaking lawyers uh, willing to assist U.S. citizens. So I thought that was really cool. And so they have a list here, usembassy.gov, and a bunch of stuff. But if you, again, go to the Department of State to travel, you'll find it, um, especially in local real estate matters. So if you're starting to buy or purchase, considering purchasing real estate in foreign countries, you really need to understand um, beyond the estate planning implications, the contract rules and laws, <clears throat> and how those are applied there. Um, you know what I'm, you know what I mean? I think so. Um, you, you, you want to, they're going to be putting contracts that, that, uh, you're probably not familiar with the way the rules or what the political, what the countries can do. It's really different here, maybe. Than yeah. Than so you just want to be, uh, understand exactly what you're getting into before you just run around buying property. Yeah. Prepare your finances. So it's another step three here. Determine your retirement budget and allow for exchange rate fluctuations and inflation. Now, I've talked to clients before. So, hey, you know, they, in, in the last uh, interesting before um, we got into the crux of the crisis, right? The, the U.S. dollar is actually tends to do well when we're in extreme crisis, right? Yep, like it has recently. But prior to that, it's funny how the arguments constantly are flipping and flopping everywhere because nobody wanted to be an international Yep. Uh, I'm sorry. Nobody wanted to be in the U.S. People wanted to be owned mostly international. Yeah, two years ago. I, I was bumping exactly into that. people. Yeah. Um, and furthermore, they weren't that interested in owning the U.S. dollar because it was getting, getting hammered, getting hammered right? right? Mm-hmm. And my response was, hey, are you planning on retiring in a foreign country? Because if that's the case, then we really should talk about a, uh, you know, why, why we would be hedging against uh, U.S. dollar declines. And their view is, if you're, say your income is going to be coming, um, from Social Security or a pension or income here, and you based your budget around um, local currency in that foreign country, well, a weakening U.S. dollar would, would be pretty painful. Sure. So you'd really want to understand how your budget, how the inflation rates and other uh, things would affect um, your financial strategy once you're living over there. Uh, paying your taxes. So leaving the country doesn't exempt you from... U.S. tax obligations. There are uh, a lot of countries where we have tax treaties, Ethan, um, right. to address double taxation issues. Uh-huh. But regardless of whether there's a tax due in both countries or in the United States, it's, just, it's you still have to file a tax return here. So even if you didn't have taxable income, you can't just not file a tax return is what they're saying. Uh-huh. Furthermore... Um, Oh, boy. Is it overtime now already? 
You know what, I Ethan? I think we're, our time is done here, but I'll save the rest of these juicy little nuggets for right. the next show, okay. and we'll start off with this retiring abroad idea. Perfect. Have a great week, and thanks for tuning in to Empirical Investing Radio. you've enjoyed empirical investing radio with ken smith and ethan broga please join us again next thursday afternoon at 5 p.m eastern time and 2 p.m pacific time on the voice america business channel and for more information about empirical investing radio please call 800-923-4307 we'll see you next week